Welcome to episode six of Law Review Squared, the Law Review Review. It is 8 p.m. on Wednesday, October 14th, 2020. I think we've all been introduced at least once, so this time let's get everyone's name and favorite animal, starting with Naila. Hey, I'm Naila, Graves Mans, and my favorite animal will probably be, oh, noise, um, a horse, because I used to ride when, I'm, when I was younger, and I won second place second year, first year I lost. All right, uh, Shenley? Hi, everyone. I'm Shenley Kent. Um, I would say my favorite animal is probably just my dog, Winnie. I'm not a dog lover, per se, but I do love my little puppy. Okay. Courtney? Hey, everyone. It's Courtney Beekler here, and I'm going to be a weirdo and say that my favorite animal is a meerkat because they're just so cute. And Seth? Hi, my name is Seth Trott. Um, I like pigs. I think pigs are uh, pretty cool. And my name is Tony Fernando, uh, and I like the orange-spotted sunfish, one of our native fish here in North America. Reminder that opinions here are those of the panelists and do not represent the view of Penn State Dickinson Law, the panelists' present, former, or future employers, or any other entity. Contents of this recording do not constitute legal advice. And now I'll turn the episode over to Seth, who picked the article and will lead the discussion. Seth? All right, this week we're going to discuss an article by B. Jesse Hill called Essentially Elective, The Law and Ideology of Restricting Abortion During the COVID-19 Pandemic. It was published in August of 2020 in the Virginia Law Review Online. The first question I have to propose here is, um, in the article it stated that the American College of obstetricians and gynecologists and the American Medical Association each put out statements in March of 2020 that essentially admonished politicians for politicizing reproductive health in the midst of the pandemic. So the first question is how heavily should medical science or science in general weigh into the law? So I'll, uh, I'll start off with uh, Shenley. What do you think about that? Where, how, how, uh, how heavily should medical science weigh into the law? I was actually going to offer Courtney out because, like, isn't your brother like a doctor or something like that, or, oh. <laughs> or married to a doctor or something? Yeah, you know. So I was going to say, Courtney, why don't you go ahead and take that one first? Uh, but I, I think <laughs> you want to go. I'll go ahead. Sure. I I will just from and I'll be really, of course, wave top here. Um, I have, in terms of all of the public health um, classes that I've taken up until now, and any kind of policy I've worked on, it's. To me, it's interesting because science has a place in the law and, and it almost seems like it has to in that it's a right for people to be able to receive medical care um, here in the US. And so to say that science has no place would be to completely remove the public health aspect from our current legal system. Um, now, to the extent, I think that's I think that's where the conversation gets really hazy, and I think that my opinion on that changes almost with every article I read. Uh, yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that the um, it should weigh very heavily. I mean, just in general, uh, because I feel like there are so many intersections as far as the law and um, and and the medical profession. So. I definitely think it should have a fair amount of weight. Tony, any any ideas? 
So I'm going to be unfortunately very careful with how I phrase things. I think um, science is one way of knowing things. There are other traditional ecological knowledges um, that do constitute ways of knowing things. And I think as we've seen during this pandemic, um, it, the scientific method itself, if it was practiced the way that it purports to be practiced may have a lot of validity to it, but I would bet that I can go out and find peer-reviewed science that says that masks are bad, masks are good, only pink masks work. Um, so it becomes very difficult for the legislature or the voter or the other people whose morality makes up the society to decide what science to follow. I yeah. mean, so I think science and the law, we have to analyze or think about the people who are anti-science intersecting with the law. A lot of those people um, are faith-based. They want to promote the law on their agenda, which is based off their religious belief. And a lot of people who are pro um, opponents of abortion base it off of their religious beliefs, but then they also include sometimes the science behind it when a fetus is considered a living being, right? So when it goes from a little tadpole looking, you know, the sperm and the egg and, you know, all of that, and then it expands and it becomes, it develops a heartbeat. So they go in between wanting to use science and not wanting to use science. I think that science supports faith in multiple ways. I think if we look at the, the DMT molecule that's in like every single living um, or not a non-living thing that isn't a rock too. So that could kind of support that everything comes from one, one being and that being could be someone's God that might've created every single thing in the world. So that's something that we can say that supports science, right? So when we are coming up with a law, I think that we have to be careful when we're using science because science is always evolving. But, we, but it's also responsible to use science to support or to you know, help people have their liberties. We can't just always rely on the things that are unseen. So kind of piggybacking off that, how about should legislatures and executives, um, should they be able to pass laws or sign executive orders pertaining to the practice of medicine, especially if those orders or laws are sort of contrary to the general views of medical professionals, and why or why not? So, I mean, I think that the idea is that in a democracy, our legislatures and our executives are implementing the will of the people. And um, medicine, medical professionals are one portion of that and they may be best positioned to know what um what is appropriate in a situation but there are also things that they may not be um the most appropriate people to be passing um passing a judgment on in the 50s doctors would recommend cigarettes right um and but ask my grandpa and he'll tell you that you know even during world war ii before the 50s they knew that cigarettes were bad for you um the one thing that I do think, however, and just to tie back into the original subject of the 
article, the um, article was talking about states that had implemented uh, bans on abortions with as medical as elective medical procedures during the pandemic, and the. I think the overwhelming consensus of, of the medical professionals is that the longer you wait to have that abortion, uh, the more likelihood of complications, as well as you're also going to hit gestational limits. Um, and that topic kind of makes it very difficult for me to say that you should override the medical profession professionals on that because they're going to be the ones who are best qualified to assess a medical risk. But if we as a society are going to say, no, we shouldn't allow this procedure or that procedure, theoretically anyway, that seems to be something that is contemplated within the way that we structure our laws. Courtney, any? That is a, oh, go ahead, sorry, Shani. That's okay. Um, I was just going to say that I think that that is a, um, those are good points that Tony brought up. I hadn't really thought about it that way. Um, but I do think that it just shows to me, like just reading this, um, I was thinking that it's essential that, you know, we have the separation of powers when you think it up, when you think about this from that standpoint, um, because um, I think that if, if you don't, it kind of puts too much weight in, in one um, branch of government um, to kind of override everything else. I mean, just thinking about how things were here in Pennsylvania, um, you know, you had the governor, you know, putting forth all these mandates for COVID-19, uh, but you had a largely Republican-ran um, state house, you know, that was really at odds with him. So um, I, I imagine that had there been one party in control of uh, the House and the executive branch, you know, things probably would have been a lot different here in Pennsylvania. Um, you know, either the Republicans in charge or the Democrats in charge. Um, but because there was that separation of power, I mean, I'm not going to say that there was like a perfect dichotomy between it, but there definitely it was um, striking the difference between the parties. So, um, and you know, in the medical profession, they don't—they're not even a part, a branch of government or anything like that. They just basically have their associations and their recommendations. Um, and I definitely think that that information should be taken into consideration because they are the subject matter experts. Um, but I, I feel like that it is a balancing act and, um, you know, you definitely have to kind of uh, weigh all the options out when you're kind of navigating your way through these types of things. Now, any, any thoughts? I mean, I think we need to be cautious when we, um, when we include the medical professionals in making our legis legislation. I mean, you know, look at the lobbyists, look at the pharmaceuticals, who are we talking about? Pharmaceutical companies that, um, pay doctors to push their um, their drugs? Or are we looking at um, medical professors like Dr. Fauci, who um, maybe, you know, we all know what, what he does. Who are we looking at? So this, this question um, has to be a little bit narrowed. Courtney, any thoughts? No, I think that, I think Naila really hit that on the head with the discussion involving, are we talking about the committees that are formed by legislature to make sure that we have these topics appropriately addressed with people who are knowledgeable in that field. Obviously, I think it would be irresponsible to ask our, you know, representatives and senators to also be subject matter experts on things in the medical profession, uh, but balancing that with uh, individuals that we've identified that are providing that advice. Yeah, you know, for for this um, this conversation, um, a, you know, part of the article was talking about 
they didn't necessarily say the abortion pill, but the abortion pill, you know, the abortion pill is something that a medical advisor can advise, advise the, the legislatures on when they're trying to decide, are we going to ban in-person abortions or can we still give out the pill and can we have facilitate the pill through a telehealth? There's a lot of moving parts here or that we can examine. Or are we just trying to get away with all abortions, period? Right, so time back into the article, uh, in 1905, Supreme Court case Jacobson versus Massachusetts uh, upheld the state mandate for smallpox vaccines, primarily on the grounds that the court lacked the power to dabble in law that affects the general welfare. Um, so the exception to that rule, though, is that, number one, when the law has no real or substantial relation to public health, morals or safety, so they're kind of pushing the limits of the argument there, or two, uh, if it's a, a, the law is a plain invasion of uh, constitutional right. So during the whole COVID-19 pandemic, um, some circuit courts upheld the ban on abortions, but uh, the courts cited Jacobson in some way in their rationale. Specifically, the Sixth Circuit argued that the limitations were justified when balanced against the public interest of freeing up hospital beds, PPE, and minimizing in-person contact during the pandemic. So is the Sixth Circuit's public interest rationale valid here? Anyone want to take that? Um, I don't know. You go ahead, I, Oh, go ahead. You go ahead. No, you go ahead. Talk. <laughs> um... I can absolutely see how they frame this. Um, I definitely think that um, it contains a lot of, to me, it contains a lot of strong language to um, try to weaponize the issue um, and to try to um, really, I think that if you take out the, uh, you know, you think about it in the context of the ideological opposition to abortion, uh, I think that this is a way for them to circumvent that and get and do do it that way. Um, I don't think that um, really that people were. I, I think that it, the it seemed to me that the government was taking the opportunity to really try to weaponize this situation and turn it on its head um, in a way to restrict access. And this seemed like it was a perfect storm in a way to do that. That's my only point. You can cut. You can cut this last part out. I'm still trying to develop my thoughts on that. No, I I think that's a really good point. Um, this really does feel like it was a way to get around um, the current state where abortion is legal and it is under many conditions and not under other conditions and had less to do with um, an actual lack of PPE. That said early in the pandemic, we don't know everything we know now. People, governments were very afraid. I was, you know, state of Minnesota had all kinds of contingency planning for who was gonna get called in if we had to start replacing bodies, you know, to answer telephones and things like that. There may have been a public interest rationale that was valid for like a week in March, but that doesn't make it valid for the entire rest of time. Yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, it was it was very scary around, you know, that, that second, third week or the, well, you know, the, this last two weeks in March. It was, you know, it, it was frightening all throughout this country, well, at least in Brooklyn where I was at, right? Everyone was scared. I had COVID. It was horrible. But 
when you look at their rationale about hospital beds, is the part in the article that talks about how abortion clinics or those facilities don't even have beds. They are not hospitals. They are third-party medical providing spaces. There are, you know, there's suites or, you know, standalones, right? So what beds are they taking up? And then, you know, I, I was just Googling a stat, and I think this is from 2013. It's a Reuters article. It says that only um, one in five cases involve a major complication that required an overnight stay a blood transfusion or a surgery. So um, how is that really affecting the hospital beds? The PPE, that was, that, that was a big deal, right? Um, but how can we circumvent that? How can we space out the abortions that we are giving? How can we figure out, okay, you know, this person wants to come in today but they might have two more weeks left where they can get this abortion in a healthy space. Could we have just spaced out our um, our patients a little bit, you know, a longer period, you know, time? There are workarounds with all of this. You know, did we have to have this amount of staff in the building to use all this PPE? There are, you know, there, there are ways around this. Like with an abortion, you technically need, I don't know, two staff members and then the, the patient. Yeah, so I think and you make a good point. I, I was thinking about that too um, earlier. Um, I think I think you're, what you said about the PPE is valid. Like you know, perhaps that that uh, you know could have been a, that was a scarce resource. So I can see that standpoint. But as far as the hospital beds, um, I think that like Nyla said, you know, there there is a small number of people that actually have complications that have to get admitted to a hospital afterwards. And I think that um, and, and I. And, you know, some red states that it's a, a part of a physician in order for him to them to do um, abortions, they have to have admitting uh, privileges to hospitals. And that's another way to kind of, you know, make it more difficult for people to access those things. Um, so it, it just shows that, I, again, I think that this was this situation was weaponized to try to turn this issue on its head and further, um, you know, regulate the reproductive rights of women. I think, any thoughts? Oh, yeah, I have um, a very <laughs> uh, personal tale, if you will. Um, I actually, in like the February, March window, um, had a significant number of appointments already scheduled for freezing my eggs. And at that time, they were all immediately canceled because it was not essential. Um, what they did was they gave precedent or priority to women who were um, coming in for IVF or active fertility treatments. And what I think is so interesting is if this conversation truly is strictly about hospital beds, in a time where we don't know how long this is going to last, obviously we are months past March and we still have this as an issue. Um, how can we say that the 
active uh, participation in allowing a woman to get pregnant, which will inevitably require a hospital bed at some point, one way or another. Um, if we're going to have these appointments ongoing in March, April, May without any stopping, um, then I think that that really negates a lot of the conversation about, well, we need abortion to stop because of hospital beds. Um, you're going to need a hospital bed in the event of a, the pregnancy being taken to full term. So I'm not really sure. It almost felt like it's delaying that rationale or that that one piece of statistic will eventually be a statistic that you're still dealing with just in a different manner. Um, so I guess that's kind of, I whether or not it's about abortions or whether or not it's, you know, women's rights, I think that if you're framing the statistic in that way, it's almost half half thought out if you don't realize that you're still going to need the hospital beds in the event of the pregnancy anyway. And the PPE and the in-person. I mean, when you're giving birth to someone, whether it be a C-section or a vaginal birth, there's somebody in there. There, There's the passage of fluids. So all yeah. three of these become null and void if you think about it. Well, if the child comes premature, that can happen with any amount of months or the standard nine-month waiting period. We're still we're in the nine-month waiting period right now, and we're still in lockdown. So speaking of hospital beds, the the author points out that a lot of abortion clinics are not often legally grouped in with hospitals. Uh, in fact, they're they're often kind of deemed like a a clinic or a, or a lower sort of class of medical provider. And so this claim of freeing up hospital beds may not be considered valid, so to speak. How do you, d does that play in at all to uh, your opinions of the previous question now that we factor in this new, I, this new fact of uh, abortion clinics being labeled a little differently? Yeah, I mean, I think that that just actually gives some credence to the things we've you know, been saying it would validate kind of where we've been going with this conversation. Um, it, <laughs> I guess it just kind of makes it more concrete. So, yeah. what, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, I, I just so I, I, I guess um, yes, that fact. Plus, I mean, if active fertility was going on, like Courtney said, uh, that really does kind of counter the argument that this was about PPE. Dial brought up a good point about. Um, about other protective gear. I guess for the whole thing where I'm caught is that like, I, I am a man, I'm not going to have an abortion. My wife is past childbearing, so she's not gonna have an abortion. So this is, this is kind of something that's a little difficult for me to put my mind around. But when I think about something that is a time sensitive surgery, like if I had to have my gallbladder out um, several years ago on an emergency basis and had they gotten to it in time, it would not have been an emergency. And if we were in that time period where PPE is a problem and everything, I still would have wanted that thing out in order to prevent the much worse emergency that actually occurred. And again, abortion's legal. Um, you you should, shouldn't want to cause people to be in more harm. I mean, whether or not you're in favor of or against, um, you shouldn't want to be. And it feels dishonest a little bit on the part of the um, the legislatures that did push this type of ban. So at what point then does public necessity, this idea that we have to kind of save the PPE and things like that, at what point does public necessity justify the limitation of private rights? I think in the instance where it's holistically applied, um, 
this kind of picking and choosing of when it's necessity, when it isn't, that just causes a lot of uh, friction, I would think, in the faith and the legal system. Um, yeah, so I think if it were wholly applied and could actually show the need, then, then maybe it's a totally different conversation than what we're having right now. I mean, I'm Googling to find out if vasectomies were banned during COVID. <laughs> I bet they. I bet they were. I bet they were. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I'm. You know, I want to figure out like what exactly is banned. You know, can you still get your Cialis? I mean, confused. So I, I kind of take a turn on the last few questions. Um, the late Justice Ginsburg, she once famously famously caught some uh, some flack from pro choice groups um, by claiming that the Roe Court. In their decision, they essentially overstepped the boundaries as a judiciary by defining specific abortion law in their rationale instead of simply striking down the prohibitive Texas abortion statute at issue uh, before the court in row. And in her view, had the court simply struck down the statute, abortion wouldn't be the hot-headed debate that it is today because individual state legislatures then would have been able to come up with their own sort of lines in the sand uh, concerning abortion, and then over time, society would just have naturally adopted the standard that it wanted as a whole, not just the standard that the majority of nine male justices felt was right at the time. And so the author of the article in question here, um, she references uh, In Ray Rutledge and Whole Woman's Health as, at least in part, examples of these blanket laws that affect unique individual circumstances. Given the limited resources of the court system, should law err on the side of taking blanket approaches as opposed to individual circumstances? And why? Um, I personally don't agree with Justice Ginsburg, um, her empirical, empirical claim on this matter being left up to individual states uh, to garner wide, widespread support. Um, because I think that when something, uh, an issue like this is left up to the state, to legislate, um, you know, we can kind of see what happens. And I'm thinking about something like uh, Shelby Shelby V. Holder um, that struck preclearance for the voting rights. And it actually generated more controversy after that. Um, so I think that, um, you know, something like that left up to statutory interpretation uh, can just be a mess. So um, personally, I think that there should be a matter of individual rights um, for a suspect class being women. Um, and that, that class should be protected across the board. Um, and it shouldn't be left up to basically an election cycle to determine what rights we have, because if it's left up to the state, you know, that could again, change from a governor or a legislation or whatever. Um, so I, I definitely think that um, with respect to reproductive rights and voting rights and things like that, like you really can't leave something like that up to the state and it needs to be consistent and needs to be across the board. I agree. A hundred percent. Thank you. So if, if, um, if Roe were overturned, how do you think today's abortion standard would play out then? We would have we lots even of have to speculate. We, yeah. So yeah. completely. And then, then what you'll have is what would happen in the 30s and the 40s and the 60s and the 70s with the back the back door abortions. There'll be a lot of um, um, deaths. Um, 
it's gonna people are gonna leave the state they're gonna go across state lines they're gonna they're gonna find their way to get an abortion and it's gonna result in death it's gonna result in jail time too because there will be doctors that will still facilitate the abortion it'll certainly result in more hospital beds <laughs> yeah it won't be regulated it won't be regulated yeah. although i do think that um you know those that are trained to provide an abortion that that would still do it under the table i think that perhaps that they would probably do it the the right way as much as, as much as they could but they won't be able to have insurance or malpractice you know malpractice insurance they they won't be able to have the overhead um how are they going to pay you know the nurse you know like you know all those things those components that make up a a medical facility will be out the door so that will be you know the challenge i don't think many people would go into this line of business at that time which would be illegal aiming to hurt people but the structures that are now in place to ensure the safety of the women receiving that procedure will no longer be there and i don't think we even have to speculate because we see it happening now like in in red states where literally they might have no abortion provider or one abortion provider and they make it very difficult for women to get it and it hurts uh, women who are low income who don't have access to you know pay for it or travel out of town to get that um so i definitely think that we would see something like that it would be more prevalent if roe v wade were overturned so given that we're having some Supreme Court justice debates going on today, um, should we start investing in uh, medical provider stock? <laughs> well, I think some people have bought a lot of stock. <laughs> I don't know who those people are. <laughs> any, any final thoughts on the uh, abortion and COVID? I just thank God I was not in that predicament. I don't know what I would have done. And thankfully, I don't know, like, you know, people don't tell you all their business, but as far as I know, I don't know anyone that has was, you know, in that space during that period of time, but that to, to not have the control over your life when you need to have the control over your life more than any other period of time, to me, is a violation of your constitutional rights and your, of your liberties. Yeah, I think that regardless of um, whether or not you would agree or disagree with what Naila just said, I think the way that this conversation had become crafted uh, really did a disservice. And, that, and that's unfortunate because it did. It turned it from something that could have been very methodically thought out, taking a highly controversial topic and approaching it for the good of the society, and instead... Um, I think that they almost played into it more and just, you know, politicized it even more. Okay, and with that, we're about out of time. Thanks again to our panel, Naila, Shenley, Courtney, and Seth. A reminder, you can find a link to this article by going to lawreviewsquared.com and looking at the episode notes. If you want to let us know why we're wrong, feel free to Twitter at Squared Law. Please like, follow, subscribe, or give us a rating wherever you found this podcast. Audio post-processing by Mohammed Salim. See you next time.